This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this final episode in the series, Final Curtain Call, a young girl leaves her hometown in Ohio for the bright lights of Broadway. Catherine Woods was enjoying her life as a single 20-something living and working in Manhattan when an obsessed love interest decides that if he can't have her, no one will. Paul Vincent Cortez disapproved of his ex-girlfriend's lifestyle and appointed himself judge, jury, and executioner when Catherine refused to allow him to control her. This is Fatal Obsession, the murder of Catherine Woods. The phone rang at Dr. John Wood's home in Ohio in the spring of 2005. On the other end of the line was a young man he did not know. He said his name was Paul, and he was calling about Dr. Wood's daughter, Catherine. Catherine had been living in New York City for about three years and was a dancer who aspired to perform on Broadway. Paul told Dr. Woods that Catherine had been involved in an incident the previous evening when she was drinking at a club called Privilege. She had set her drink down, the young man said, and after returning to it and taking a sip, she soon felt woozy, as if she'd been drugged. He'd taken her to the hospital, where he left her with another friend. The man went on to provide more details to the concerned father. His daughter had been overindulging in alcohol and drugs, he claimed. But beyond that, he told Dr. Woods that she had also been stripping in topless bars in the city. Dr. Woods was alarmed but thanked the young man for taking the time to inform him about his daughter. He thought the caller sounded rational and intelligent, as well as concerned for Catherine. He told him he'd get to the bottom of it, and thanked him once more before hanging up the phone. He immediately informed his wife Donna, and they began making phone calls. Unable to reach Catherine, they called the hospital Paul had named, but could not get any information because their daughter was an adult and medical records were private. He also called the club where Paul said his daughter was employed, but they were told that no one named Catherine worked there. Dr. Woods decided not to waste any more time and booked a flight to New York City to find out what was going on. Catherine Elizabeth Woods was born in 1984 and grew up in Worthington, a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. She was the oldest child of John and Donna Woods. Her father was the director of Ohio State University's top-rated marching band and was a well-known and respected figure in the community. At the age of three, Catherine began taking dance lessons under the tutelage of Mary Rose Bushrow at Dance Reach Studio. She studied ballet, tap, jazz, and modern dance and spent many hours at the dance studio throughout her life. At an early age, Catherine decided to make dance her life and set her sights on Broadway. Her teacher, Mary Rose, told a reporter for the Star Journal, quote, Catherine had that star quality from the moment she walked into my building. She had not only the physicality and intelligence, but a radiance of spirit that enveloped those around her, unquote. Catherine was smart as well as talented and completed an accelerated high school program graduating a year early. 
Although only 17 years old at the time of her graduation, Catherine told her parents she was ready to move to New York City to begin auditioning for dance roles. Her parents were understandably nervous to allow their teen daughter to move over 500 miles away to live on her own and in one of the most populated cities in the country. But they knew that once Catherine made up her mind, she was bound and determined to make it happen. She packed up and headed to Manhattan in 2002. Once there, Catherine found an apartment and a school of dance where she enrolled in classes. She also began auditioning and applying for jobs to pay for her living expenses. She first worked as a waitress and taught dance classes to stay afloat. On a trip back to Columbus shortly after moving to the East Coast, Catherine met David Hahn, a 20-year-old who dreamed of a music career. David was a rapper who went by the nickname City. The two quickly became an item, and when Catherine returned to New York, David joined her. They lived together in an Upper East Side apartment. David found work as a doorman while continuing to pursue a musical career. This was the extent of the information Dr. Woods had about his daughter's life when he arrived in New York in April of 2005. At that time, Catherine had been living in Manhattan for three years. Going on the information provided to him by a stranger, Dr. Woods set out to find her and make sure she was okay. He located her at her apartment soon after landing. He was surprised and relieved to see that she looked no worse for wear. Catherine appeared healthy and certainly didn't look like someone who'd spent the night at the emergency ward or was battling drug and alcohol addiction. Taken aback at her father's surprise appearance on her doorstep, Catherine heard the story about the phone call he'd received and became angry. She told her father that Paul was Paul Cortez, a guy she knew but was not involved with. She said he'd been calling her repeatedly, although she told him she wasn't interested in him and he had since become a nuisance. She said that Paul even called her workplace and tried to get her fired. All the stories Paul had told her father about her being a stripper and being on drugs were a lie, she insisted. She also told her father that she was planning on taking out a restraining order to get Paul to stop calling her. Dr. Woods saw no signs that his daughter was in distress or otherwise compromised, so he believed her when she said she was fine and not to worry. He stayed in the city a while longer to convince himself she was safe before flying home. Catherine was livid that Paul Cortez had called her family without her knowledge or permission. She was now done with him and wanted him out of her life completely. Paul Vincent Cortez was born in New York City and raised with his two older siblings in the Bronx. His mother, Yvette, was raising her children alone after she and their father split and he moved to the Midwest. Paul was well-liked, talented, and an intelligent child. At the age of 11, he was accepted into an elite private school in Brooklyn and provided with a scholarship to pay the $30,000 a year tuition. He was also an athlete, wrestling for the school's championship team and studying martial arts. But his first love was performing. He joined the school's drama department and loved the lights of the stage so much that he applied to Boston University's School of Fine Arts. He was accepted and once again awarded a scholarship to attend. He majored in theater at Boston U, graduating in 2003. After graduation, Paul moved back to New York City. His love of music and talent as a singer landed him as the lead vocalist in two local rock bands, Stillwater and Monolith. 
The bands performed at clubs around the city. To pay the rent, Paul began working as a personal trainer and yoga instructor at the gym Equinox, where he worked out. It was here that he first met 20-year-old Catherine Woods in the summer of 2004. He began asking the pretty dark-haired dancer to attend some of his band's gigs, and she accepted. Catherine and David were still living together, but their relationship had been anything but smooth sailing. Both were young and had barely known each other when they moved in together. They were meeting lots of new people while living and working in Manhattan, and decided it was best to just be friends, even though they still cared for one another. However, because rentals in New York City were so expensive, they remained roommates, moving to a larger apartment on 86th Street. Catherine, at first, enjoyed spending time with Paul Cortez. He was handsome, talented, and popular. He had many female admirers at the gym, as well as girls who hit on him when he performed with his band. He was a native New Yorker who knew the city well and was five years Catherine's senior. He was not only attracted to Catherine, but seemed to care for her well-being, giving her advice, and showing her around the city. Catherine was flattered by his attention, and they became friends, and then began dating in the fall of 2004. Paul was smitten with Catherine immediately. He told his closest friend, Jakey Levy, that he believed she was the one. He said that Catherine was, quote, so beautiful, she makes me feel so good. Another bandmate of his, Alex Casella, said that when Paul began bringing Catherine around, it was obvious he was excited and happy to be with her, but he described Catherine as less enthusiastic, saying that she acted somewhat standoffish with Paul. It's possible that Catherine, having just gotten out of a long-term relationship, wasn't interested in jumping into another one right away. According to those who knew him, Paul Cortez fell in love with Catherine right away and fell hard. She, on the other hand, was still in an on-again, off-again relationship with her ex-boyfriend-slash-roommate and was casually dating other guys as well. In other words, it appears that she wasn't looking for a serious romance at the time, and Paul's ardor was not mutually reciprocated. Catherine had been residing in Manhattan for almost two and a half years by this time. Not only was it one of the most exciting cities in the world to live in, but it was also one of the most expensive. Catherine was struggling to afford her portion of the rent, pay for her dance classes, and other expenses on a waitress's salary. Other dancers she knew told her that she could make extra money dancing in gentlemen's clubs. The proprietors of these types of establishments were always looking for pretty girls who could dance. They told her the pay was good, and she could earn over $1,000 per week in tips as an exotic dancer. Catherine began dancing at a club called Privilege in April of 2005. Paul and Catherine were still seeing each other occasionally, but it appears she was not inviting him to her apartment very often. David, who was still living there, claimed to have only seen Paul Cortez once that spring. But Paul was making it clear that he wasn't happy Catherine was living with a guy, and when he discovered it was her ex-boyfriend, he became even more upset. People at the health club reported seeing Paul angrily arguing with Catherine as early as the fall when they first began dating. The tension escalated when he learned that Catherine was working as an exotic dancer. He told his friends that he loved Catherine and didn't know why she'd want to, quote, sell skin for money. He repeatedly said that she was putting herself in danger working in a club like that, and he urged Catherine to quit her job. He even gave her an ultimatum, stating that she could either choose him or, quote, being a stripper. Catherine became angry and said it was unfair to ask her to give up a job that she needed to pay her bills. Instead of backing off, 
Cortez continued to harangue her about her, quote, lifestyle. Then he took matters even further. The club's house mother, Chloe, was in charge of hiring and managing the dancers. Cortez called Chloe and begged her to make Catherine, who went by the stage name Ava, quit her job. Cortez told Chloe that Catherine was drinking too much and possibly doing drugs. He said he'd found hotel matchbooks among Catherine's possessions, and he believed that she was, quote, turning tricks, doing sex work on the side. Chloe spoke with Catherine and asked her what was going on with her boyfriend, Paul. Catherine told her not to worry about him. She said he was, quote, crazy, and she wasn't dating him anymore. Cortez also showed up uninvited to her apartment that spring and demanded to speak with David. Catherine told him to go away, but he continued ringing the buzzer until David insisted on going downstairs to tell him to get lost. Once outside, Paul pleaded with David, saying he needed to talk to him. Cortez then proceeded to tell him that he and Catherine had been seeing each other since August. He said this as if he was revealing a secret and implied that Catherine was lying to David and or cheating on him. David wasn't too surprised, since they had broken up in the late summer, early fall. Cortez also seemed to imply that he was breaking things off with Catherine, but wanted David to know what kind of girl she was or something to that effect. Dave ended the conversation and Paul left. When he shared the conversation with Catherine, she denied that she and Paul were romantically involved. She characterized Cortez as a friend whom she hung out with occasionally. She said he was crazy and had been going around telling people he was her boyfriend. Not long after this incident, Cortez called Catherine's father to inform him of her supposed hospitalization. He also told others that he'd most likely saved Catherine from being raped that night and that she was living a dangerous lifestyle that he had pleaded with her to abandon. Catherine, angry at his demands, accusations, and meddling, stopped answering his phone calls. She and David resumed their relationship briefly, but the reunion didn't last. David would later report that while he never saw any other men come to the apartment to visit Catherine, she sometimes didn't return home in the evenings, and he assumed she was dating other guys. Paul Cortez, however, hadn't given up on getting Catherine back. He was talking to others about her in the spring of 2005 and into the summer about his frustration with Catherine because she wouldn't stop stripping and his heartbreak over losing her. He also wrote about his feelings in a private journal. In it, he wrote lyrics for songs and stories. One of the stories, written the previous winter, detailed a violent fantasy about the rape and murder of a woman who hailed from the Midwest, like Catherine. In July, David called Paul Cortez and told him to stop calling and texting Catherine. She had shared with David that Paul was still harassing her by calling her repeatedly, and she wanted him out of her life. But later that summer, Catherine was once again seen attending Paul's band performances. She insisted to friends that she and Paul were just friends, but his friends would later say that he and Catherine were dating again. The nature of their relationship at this time whether they were just dating, just friends, friends with benefits, is unclear. What we do know is that by October, they got into a big argument and Catherine stopped talking to him again. She'd caught Paul going through her phone and told him that that was the last straw. But even though Catherine broke things off completely, instead of letting the relationship go, Paul doubled down in his pursuit of her. On October 19th, he called Catherine's cell phone 57 times. She returned only three of the calls, and the connections only lasted a few seconds to a minute. A week later, he phoned her 47 times in one day. Catherine returned seven of those calls, 
perhaps in an attempt to convince him to stop calling. It appears that she did not have the heart to simply block his phone or cut the communication off completely. This may have been a small courtesy that Paul Cortez took as an encouragement to continue his campaign to win her back. During this time, Cortez also told his friend Stephanie that he and his girlfriend were having, quote, a hard time. He told her that he was hurt Catherine was involved in activities he, quote, didn't approve of. He said his girlfriend was, quote, really into pornographic movies and making porno movies. Even while insisting that he was in love with Catherine and was brokenhearted, he continued to paint her in a bad light and malign her character to others. Stephanie later reported that Cortez came across to her as, quote, needy. He wrote Catherine a letter that was later discovered in his journal. In it, he stated his demand once again that she, quote, quit the industry of selling skin and quit being treated like a whore, end quote. He also expressed his desire that she quit the, quote, sex for money life as well as your ex, end quote. There is no indication that Catherine ever saw the contents of this letter. His obsession with Catherine continued into November when he told friends he was still in love with her and couldn't get over the breakup. Early in the week before the Thanksgiving holiday, she attended one of his band's performances. A day or so later, witnesses recalled seeing Catherine arguing on the street with the man who may have been Paul Cortez. She was seen with the man who had long brown hair and was wearing a leather jacket. They were on the corner near her apartment, and the man grabbed her roughly by the elbow and was shouting. Catherine could be heard saying angrily, let me go. Paul invited Catherine to his mother's house for Thanksgiving dinner, but she did not attend. Instead, she spent the day with David. Paul's mother said while her son arrived sad and disappointed that Catherine wasn't coming, as the day progressed, Paul appeared to be enjoying himself. By that weekend, Catherine Woods would be dead. On Sunday, November 27th, Paul spent the afternoon shopping with his friend Stephanie. They bought grocery items and went to the bookstore where he purchased a book of poetry. He asked Stephanie to sit with him and listen to him read some of the poems, but she declined. While he was still shopping with Stephanie, one of Paul's friends called him on his cell phone. Paul took the call, and Stephanie overheard him saying that he was with a beautiful blonde 36-year-old professional woman. He appeared to be bragging and perhaps in an attempt to impress his friend, said that they were going to buy strawberries and that he was, quote, going to take them home and put them all over her body and lick them off, end quote. Stephanie became angry with Paul over this comment and took back an invitation to have brunch at her apartment. At 2.45 p.m., while still with Stephanie, Cortez texted Catherine. Around 4 p.m., he and Stephanie parted. He told her he was going home and planned to go out with friends later that evening. Cell phone records would later record several calls Cortez made to Catherine beginning at 5 p.m. that evening. The first call lasted about three minutes, but subsequent calls, starting at about five minutes later, lasted only a few seconds each. It appears that he spoke with Catherine briefly at 5 p.m., but as he began calling her repeatedly just minutes later, she continually hung up on him. At 5.11 p.m., Catherine called Cortez's cell phone, staying on the line with him for just over a minute. More calls made by Cortez continued to ring Catherine's phone, the last one placed just a few minutes before 6 p.m. Catherine was at home getting ready for work at this time. 
David was also home. He left the apartment just after 6 p.m. to run an errand and pick up his car to drive Catherine to work. It was the last time he'd see her alive. David Hahn left the apartment he shared with Catherine Woods on 86th Street just after 6 p.m. on Sunday, November 27, 2005. He first stopped at the building where he was employed as a doorman a block away on East 87th Street. He spoke to two co-workers for a couple of minutes before leaving to pick up his car that was parked down the street. Back at the apartment, Catherine was talking to her friend Megan on the phone. It was 6.25 p.m. Fifteen minutes later, David returned to the building. He parked on the street where Catherine normally met him and waited. When he didn't see her emerge from the apartment building, he called her cell phone. She didn't answer. He walked to the front of the building and rang the buzzer to their apartment, but she still didn't respond. David returned to his car to retrieve his apartment key. As he reached the lobby, a neighbor approached and told him that one of his dogs, a Labrador retriever, had run out of his apartment. He made his way quickly to the second floor and saw his dog in the hallway. Another neighbor had brought the dog back. David thanked him and went in the front door. He found the door unlocked, and as he walked inside, he called out to Catherine. There was no answer. He moved down the hallway, and as he approached Catherine's bedroom, he saw that the bed had been pushed up against the doorway, blocking it. He peered inside the room and saw a horrible sight. There was blood everywhere, David later recalled. The room was in disarray. He saw Catherine lying on the floor face down in a pool of blood. He'd never seen so much blood in his life. David called 911 at 6.59 p.m. He had been out of the apartment for less than an hour. He told the 911 operator that he'd found his girlfriend unconscious, there was blood everywhere, and he did not know if she was alive. At the direction of the emergency operator, he nudged Catherine to see if he could detect any signs of life. She didn't move. Panic could be heard in his voice as he repeatedly called out to her, Catherine, baby girl, but got no response. Police officers and paramedics arrived within minutes. Catherine had been attacked in her bedroom. There were multiple stab wounds on her neck and body, and her throat had been slashed. Her jugular vein and larynx were almost completely severed along with her carotid artery. She had almost certainly died immediately. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Officers recorded that David appeared visibly shaken and in shock. When asked who might have wanted to hurt Catherine, he said someone named Paul or Paul Vincent had been stalking her. Even so, David was the first suspect who'd need to be cleared. He was the last person to see the victim alive and was her ex-boyfriend. David was taken in for questioning and spent the rest of the day and into the next being interrogated. He cooperated fully, telling detectives, quote, I would never hurt that girl, not at all. I loved her. I would have done anything for her, end quote. David submitted to fingerprinting and nail scrapings were taken from his hands. His body was photographed to document any injuries. There were none. Afterward, he was allowed to leave, although detectives informed him that the investigation would be ongoing. NYPD detectives contacted the Columbus Police Department and relayed the information regarding Catherine's murder. An officer was given the grim task of driving out to the Woods' home to share the worst news that Donna and John Woods would ever receive. 
Detectives began their investigation into the brutal murder of Catherine Woods. Catherine and David's upstairs neighbor reported hearing a scream, a scuffle, and a dog yelping just after 6.30 p.m. on Sunday. He looked outside his door to the stairwell but saw no one. He did not call the police. The crime scene was described as bloody and horrific. When homicide detectives moved the mattress that had been propped up against the bedroom wall, they found arterial blood spray on the wall about four feet off the ground. Technicians would later analyze it and conclude that it had most likely occurred when Catherine's throat was slashed. They further determined that the killer had made two cuts to the throat while standing behind the victim. The blood spray pattern had hit the wall directly and had not been obstructed as it would have been if the killer had been standing between the victim and the wall. This would indicate that although there was a great amount of blood found at the scene, the killer may have been able to leave with their clothing relatively free of blood. You may recall that this was a point prosecutors made during the O.J. Simpson trial to explain why, in their opinion, Simpson was able to clean up fairly quickly before a limousine arrived to transport him to the airport the night his ex-wife Nicole Simpson and her friend Ron Goldman were murdered. Other evidence found at the scene of Catherine's murder was bloody boot tracks found on the floor, on the back of Catherine's shirt, and on the bed sheets. In addition, a bloody handprint with all five fingers outlined in blood was found on the bedroom wall. Friends and acquaintances of Catherine Woods were interviewed, and several mentioned Paul Cortez, an ex-boyfriend who could not seem to get over their breakup. The morning after the murder, Monday, November 28th, Cortez was late to meet a client for a training session. The client later told investigators that Cortez had never been late before. Cortez appeared to be depressed, according to the client, and when he was asked why he was so down, he replied that he was, quote, watching football all day yesterday and was ready to cry over the Giants and Jets' losses. The client remembered this statement as peculiar, since he hadn't known Cortez to be interested in football or sports at all in the past. Later that morning, Paul's mother, Yvette Cortez, learned about Catherine's murder through a news report. She called her son at work to give him the news. He went home soon after receiving this call. Detectives arrived at Paul Cortez's apartment around 11 a.m. After asking him a few preliminary questions, they requested he accompany them to the precinct. He went willingly. Once there, they asked him to state on the record where he had been and what he had done the day before. Cortez told them that he'd taught a yoga class in the morning before meeting a friend to go shopping. He'd taken the bus home around 4.30 p.m. and had tried to call Catherine at 5.30 but was unable to reach her. Around 8 p.m., he said he'd met another friend, Spence, at a bar on 82nd Street, and they'd watch football. About an hour later, he and Spence went to the apartment of a mutual friend named Rob, who lived on 89th Street. He said he'd returned home before midnight. In addition, he claimed that the last time he'd seen Catherine was at the gym on November 26th. He hadn't been in her apartment for several weeks, Cortez told investigators. He allowed detectives to check his body for injuries, but other than a small blister on one hand, he had none. He also allowed them to take a shoe print and take a DNA sample from him. Detectives asked him to provide a written statement. He agreed, and in the statement, wrote that Catherine had been in a, quote, bad relationship with David Hahn, and claimed that she told him she wanted her ex-boyfriend out of the picture. He also noted that Catherine, quote, used to strip and do porn, end quote. After about a five-hour interview, Cortez was allowed to leave. His fingerprints were not collected. Detectives tried to confirm Cortez's alibi. 
they spoke to the friends he'd claimed to be with on Sunday. Each confirmed that they'd spent some time with him that evening watching football, but also volunteered that it was out of character for Paul to watch sports. They described how Cortez had talked about Catherine incessantly for the past few months, if not longer, but found it curious that he had not brought her up that night even once. Detectives also spoke to Paul's bandmate, Alex, who said Paul had missed a 6 p.m. band rehearsal on Sunday, which was unusual for him. Alex had finally been able to reach him around 8 p.m. Paul claimed that he'd missed the rehearsal because he'd fallen asleep and had just woken up. Now detectives had conflicting stories about Cortez's whereabouts during the time in question. They pulled his cell phone records, which showed more than just a call or two to Catherine that day, as he claimed, but at least 14. Six of the calls had been placed between 5.27 p.m. and 6.33 p.m. After the last one, which coincided with the approximate time of Catherine's death, the calls had stopped. Cell phone records also revealed that the calls had been made in the vicinity of Catherine's apartment, not near Cortez's, where he claimed he was that evening. His apartment was located over 30 blocks away from Catherine's. As the news came out about Catherine's murder, other witnesses came forward to provide more information. A man called police to report that he'd witnessed Paul Cortez dumping garbage in the early morning hours of Thanksgiving weekend. He lived in the same apartment building as Cortez and claimed that around 4 or 5 a.m., he'd seen Cortez standing in the cold, wearing only boxer shorts, dumping garbage bags into the trash bins in front of the building. On December 19th, a woman came forward to report that Paul Cortez, with whom she'd formerly been in a romantic relationship, had sexually assaulted her a year earlier. Police now arrested Cortez and charged him with this assault. As a result of this arrest, they were now able to collect his fingerprints. The fingerprints were analyzed and were determined to be a match for the bloody fingerprints found at the crime scene. On December 23, 2005, Paul Cortez was arrested and charged with the murder of Catherine Woods. At trial, prosecutors portrayed Paul Cortez as obsessed with Catherine Woods and unwilling to let her go after she broke up with him. His obsession was demonstrated by the numerous calls, texts, and demands he made that Catherine quit her job as an exotic dancer. They told the jury that Cortez had murdered Catherine Woods after she'd rejected him. They also stated that he'd become increasingly hostile towards women and had developed a, quote, murderous rage against the one woman he couldn't control or bend to his will. Entered into evidence was the bloody handprint found at the crime scene. A fingerprint examiner analyzed it and compared it to Cortez's fingerprints. It was determined that the print was identical to Cortez's left index finger. In addition, the examiner found 13 points of comparison with no discrepancies in the fingerprint. Only 8 points are required to make a positive comparison, according to the fingerprint examiner. The bloody boot prints were also analyzed. They were determined to have been made by a size 10.5 or 11 Skechers Cool Cat Bully Boot. These were the exact boots that Paul's friend Spencer told investigators he'd been wearing at the bar on the night of the murder. Paul Cortez's shoe size was a 10.5. Also entered into evidence was a red satin journal found in Paul Cortez's apartment upon his arrest. In the journal, Cortez vented his anger and frustration about Catherine ending their relationship. He wrote how frustrated he was that he, quote, could not keep her close. 
He wrote that Catherine did not understand his love and that he, quote, couldn't save her. She does not want to be saved. How wretched I am to feel this insecure, he lamented. Prosecutors also said that Cortez had demonstrated a fascination with knives and slit throats, precisely the way Catherine had been killed. He'd written stories and lyrics with violent fantasies about stabbing and killing women. On February 15, 2007, Paul Cortez was found guilty of secondary murder and was sentenced to 25 years to life. In 2011, the Court of Appeals confirmed his conviction, citing, quote, overwhelming evidence of guilt. In 2017, he was denied a new trial. Paul Cortez has supporters who believe in his innocence. They adamantly insist that he is not the type of person who could commit such a crime. Instead, they point to David Hahn or an unknown intruder as the actual killer. The claim is often made by Cortez's supporters that because Catherine was working as an exotic dancer, she may have met some dangerous people, any one of whom could have committed this crime. But it's possible, and even likely, that the right man is behind bars for all the reasons presented at trial. Whether you believe that Paul Cortez murdered Catherine Woods or not, it's a cheap shot to point to her job as a reason, or even a likely outcome, for her tragic death. The reality is that Catherine Woods was just a young girl starting out in life when it was ended in such a brutal way. We don't know what she might have done, who she might have become. She was said to be a rare talent by those who knew her and saw her dance. She had something special, they all said, and given time, she could have become a Broadway star. Or maybe she would have met someone, fallen in love, and started a family. She could have done any number of things, but we'll never know what might have been. Unfortunately, Catherine's story is an all-too-familiar tale. A young woman becomes entangled with a boyfriend or husband who is narcissistic and or insecure and who tries to control their partner. When he can't, he becomes obsessed, angry, and dangerous. According to his own words written in that red satin journal, Paul Cortez had been rejected by women before meeting Catherine. This was very likely, in part, due to his controlling and jealous behavior, a true indication of an emotionally stunted and insecure person. Even while he claimed to be in love, Cortez created stories in his mind in which Catherine was a bad girl whom he must save. But Catherine was a secure, confident young woman who didn't want or need saving. The evidence for this is the fact that she was determined and brave enough to leave home at the age of 17 to pursue her dream in an unfamiliar city. As young girls, we grow up hearing fairy tales like Cinderella, a story in which a woman is saved by her Prince Charming. But if you think about the details of the story, Cinderella was more than capable of saving herself. She grew up with an abusive stepmother and two horrible stepsisters, and not only survived this ordeal, but did so with a smile on her lips and a song in her heart. She was either an extremely strong woman or a complete lunatic, but whatever. In either case, compare her with the prince, who lived a privileged life in a castle, wearing a weird uniform with epaulets, and who was squired around protected by royal guards. Cinderella went to a ball in a pumpkin, for God's sakes. But I digress. You get the picture. I believe that, like that prince, who may have felt inadequate compared to his Cinderella if he was honest, Paul Cortez felt small next to Catherine. To level the playing field so he could feel in control and in charge of the relationship, Cortez attempted to tear her down for judging and condemning her for the way she made a living. 
he spread rumors about her turning tricks and doing porn in an attempt to shame her and ruin her reputation. Doesn't sound much like love to me. Cortez's popularity, good looks, and expensive education had garnered him a lot of attention from women, and he liked to play the field, but he couldn't bear it that Catherine was allowed to do the same. When he couldn't charm, convince, or bully her into submitting to his control, he lost control. Paul Cortez decided he would destroy what he couldn't have to obliterate his feelings of being inadequate, insecure, and inferior. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime, and that will wrap up the series for July, Final Curtain Call. Join us next week as we begin our August series. You won't want to miss it. It's going to be a wild ride and one I've been looking forward to sharing with you for some time. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Additional support for this episode was provided by Studio 71. Until next time, be good to one another.